Well, we're in John chapter 5, so as we've seen already, the, the, the goal that John the Apostle has in, in writing this letter is to, is to help people understand with very, very clear heart and mind that Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than some prophet. Jesus truly is God. And so John, as he does chapter 1, he just flat out says he's God. And then you move into to chapter 2, and, and John spells out very clearly by two miracles that he has these abilities, these amazing abilities to perform miracles as signs that he's God. In chapter 3, he, he finds a religious man by the name of Nicodemus, and he says, you need God. You don't have God. You need to be born again. And then we find out in chapter 4, he tracks down a Samaritan woman, the least of all people you would think that would, God would reach out to, and he reaches her for Christ's sake, and she comes to be a believer, and many in Samaria come to know Christ, and then he reaches a nobleman's son, and he heals him, and he heals his son from a distance. He doesn't have to see him. He doesn't have to touch him. He just speaks the word as God, and he's healed. This brings us now to chapter 5, and what we're going to see in this, this morning in the, in the text is really a comparison of the true gospel message compared to religion. Careful, church. It's so easy to start out with Christ and fall into some tradition and some religious work and lose our way from what truly the gospel message is. That's what this section is about. Let's read the text. Verses 1 through 9. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, There is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, and he stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the man answered and said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, and he picked up his pallet and he began to walk. Now it was Sabbath on on that day. So why is the gospel better than religion? I mean, why? Well, the first thing that we see really in this, this section right here in verses 1 through 9 is that religion, it promotes superstition and bondage. It promotes superstition and bondage. But the gospel, it offers the power of God and freedom. The gospel, it offers the power of God and freedom. The gospel message frees people. And it transforms people. It changes who they are and who they were. Clint was speaking about this young man. The truth of that is the power of the gospel. The truth of God's saving work. It's it's not it's not a dead faith. It's living. It's active. And so the text here begins after these things. We look back, and Jesus had just healed this this young man's son. Like I said, he did it from a distance. It shows his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He's God. And then this, it says that it's the beginning of the Galilean ministry. This is where Jesus is going to spend the next 16 months. 
And during the 16 months, he's, he's going to spend time preaching the gospel, but also healing people. And the sad part is, is many of the people there will not receive Christ. Why? Because they're trapped in a religious system, a very powerful system. And he'll perform all these miracles, but even though they see them, they will not believe. It's important for us to understand the power of false religious systems. They promote lies. They create superstitious ideas that people fall into, and it traps them into a system. Religion makes great promises, but they're always empty. Now, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And this this feast that he went to, it doesn't say which feast it is. It's one of three. It's either Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Pentecost. And all the Jewish males that were required to go up to Jerusalem for these. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, so of course he's going to be there. And after he healed the nobleman's son in chapter 4, he works his way over to the pool of Bethesda for this divine appointment. This is not happenstance. This is not circumstance that Jesus is going to meet this man who's been sick. This is divine. Jesus does nothing except He has a purpose in everything. And it should help us also and today to understand this is the way that God works. This is the way the kingdom of God works. God's kingdom is always working. It's always moving. And and He calls His people like us to have kingdom eyes and kingdom ears to be open to what He's doing. There's a reason He has you in your family. There's a reason you have the very job that you have. There's a reason that you're in this church in Mission Viejo. God wants to use you, but your eyes need to be sensitive and open. Your ears need to be listening. What does God want? Is He moving? Jesus goes there for a purpose, and He goes there to meet this crippled man. We also need to understand the thinking of the Jews in that day. Those who were infirm, those who were crippled, those who were lame and blind, when the Jews thought of them, they thought there must be something wrong with them. They must have done some kind of sin that God is judging them. So this man who Jesus meets, he's not going to receive any kind of compassion. He's not going to receive any kind of help from anyone else. Look at verse 2. It says, now there is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. Now, these porticos, these five porticos, I I don't know what you call them. They're like patios. They're covered. And so, these people who really can't move very well, it keeps them out of the sun. And the reason that they're there is because there's this superstition that has been basically portrayed to them that if the waters are moving, then somehow an angel from God has come down and he's stirring the waters. And by the way, only the first one in gets to be freed from whatever they have. This is what religion does. It teaches superstitions, traditions that people begin to believe even though they don't find them in Scripture. But look at verse 4. It says, For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was affected. Now, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this section in it. The end of verse 3, which says, waiting for the moving of the water, and all of verse 4. Matter of fact, my Bible has it in brackets. Maybe yours does too. Most scholars feel that later on, maybe first, second century, a scribe entered those in. Why? Because there was already a superstition that the people believed. 
and he entered it in as fact, but it wasn't fact. You have these people there because of the religious thinking of that day. They thought, well, maybe if this water stirs, then maybe it's an angel that will come. Religion, it promotes superstitions. It has religious traps that, that cause people to be trapped in a system. You know, I think of Buddhism. When we were in Thailand, I, people build these little shrines or like houses and they have them in their yards and they're hoping that their ancestors will come and inhabit those houses so they bring food to it and hope that they will get a blessing from that. They also, if you ever, you've seen them around here, these little Buddhas, right? Well, the Buddhas, they think, have some kind of power that'll bring peace or, or love or blessing on a home. You see this in cults with people going door to door thinking the more doors they knock, the more they can earn their place in a place in heaven. You see people that will, will pray to saints thinking that somehow the saints will have an intermediary effect with God. On and on I could go. It's tradition. It's not the scripture. It's not the gospel of God. And this poor man has been there a long time. Look at verse 5. A man was there who's been ill for 38 years. For almost four decades, this man has been sick. Now, this is sick to the point of unable to move very well. He, he, he can't function very well. And I don't know who's brought him to this place so that he can have an opportunity to go into the water. And Jesus sees this man and he stops and he asks him a question. Look at verse 6. When he saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, I'm thinking... Why would he ask that? I mean, of course. I mean, why else is he there? Why would he be by this pool? I mean, he's sick. He's obviously, he wants to get well. There's a reason he does that. Everything that Jesus does and says has a reason. Commentator James Boyce says that his question, it served several purposes. It secured the man's full attention. It focused that he had a need. It offered him healing and what it did is it communicates the love and the grace and the compassion that Jesus has for the hurting and the affirmed. But the man, he doesn't grasp what Jesus is saying. He's still thinking, oh, I need the water. I need to somehow get somebody to move me over there. It's, it's a superstition. He's holding on to the superstition. It reminds me of people that watch the TV preachers and they order the little prayer handkerchiefs and things, thinking that somehow it's going to bring some kind of a blessing or health or wealth or whatever it is. They're lost. It's not the gospel message. It's not the truth of the scriptures. It's religion. This is why the sick man says in verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Superstition was teaching that when the water stir, that first guy in, he gets the, the prize. This man's too sick to be able to move fast, and so somebody else always got there first. Superstition always lets you down. Religion is always empty. It gives a portion of the truth, but it's stuffed with a lie. And in the end, people end up in hell. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is power. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe. And when people hear the truth of what the gospel says, and they believe, and by faith they turn, power comes in, and it changes a life. And so Jesus, he speaks, and this man is healed. And we need to understand that this is an evidence, again, that Jesus is God. God creates 
by the very power of speaking. John 1, 3 says, all things came into being through Him, that is Jesus, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, 16 says, for by Him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Jesus gives this crippled man more than he ever expected. He commands with authority that this man be restored. And he does it with or without faith. Hear me on that. This is a work of God. The healing that he does here is without faith. This man does not even know who Jesus is. At this point, he doesn't know who this man is who's talking to him. But Jesus does a miracle. And that miracle is not based on this man's faith, but it's based on the will of God. We as a church, we believe that, that in, in the miracles that God does, we believe in the gifts for today, but we understand that it's God who does the work. It's not our faith. You don't have to muster up a bunch more faith to make God do something. He is not a genie in a bottle. You simply must believe and trust, and it's His will, His timing, His way. We ask in faith, but it's up to God to move. And Jesus moved. And what we see here is the power of God and freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always accompanied with power. This healing here is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of, uh, of, the, of the gospel message being worked out in the life of a sinner. It has the, the, the power to heal the brokenhearted. It has the power to restore a broken life. It has the power to give purpose to the misguided. This man being infirmed and sick is a picture of how the gospel works and the lost and those who are needy. This healing is a picture of freedom. This man is in bondage. He is wrapped in, in, in a physical condition that he can't get out of. And it's the same picture of people who are, who are lost and trapped in their sin. And they're stuck. They cannot move. They cannot get free on their own. But the truth of the gospel message, that Jesus saves the lost, that he offered himself in your stead, if you'll simply trust in him, it frees us from that sin and enables us now to live for God. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And my fear is that there's some of you here this morning and you're still trapped in your sin. You're stuck. You're unwilling to move in faith and trust in Christ, your only hope. It's always offered freely. It's given as a gift. You must receive it like a gift. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When the gospel message is preached and people believe you're freed. You now can say no to sin. You now have the ability. Before that, you're enslaved to sin. And when the Son makes you free, the Bible says you are free indeed. It's a finished work. And this healing here, it wasn't a process of healing. He was freed at the moment. Look at verse 9. It says, immediately 
The man became well and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. It says, now it was the Sabbath day. This incident, it illustrates God's sovereign grace in the pursuit of a sinner. There was nothing in this man that he deserved to be shown the mercy that he was shown. This man did not seek out Jesus. Jesus approached him. The Lord did not choose him because he foresaw that this man was going to have great faith at some point. He chose him because it was his will to choose him and enact upon him the grace that he received. This man is a picture of Israel. Israel had been sick for years. Israel had been trapped in tradition. They, they were lost. They hadn't had a prophet in over 400 years until John the Baptist showed up. They were waiting for a Messiah, and suddenly the Messiah is there. And if they would simply believe and follow that Messiah, they would have been healed, but they would not listen. And sadly, this man doesn't listen either, as we're going to see as we go forward in the story. And I read a, an article in the New York Magazine about a, a man who was freed from prison, and, and this man was tried and, and put in prison, but it was unjust that he actually was innocent. And after 21 years in prison, they set him free. And they asked him, how did that feel, that first moment? I wanted to share with you his thoughts. He says, the day I walked out, my wife, my nephew, and my son was in the car waiting for me. And there was a church right around the corner. And I would always listen to the bells ringing when I was in jail. And I didn't even know where the church really was, but I would pray when I would hear the bells. And, and it was my only opportunity to pray. At the same time, people outside were praying too. And when I got out, that was the first thing I wanted to do. I wanted to go around the corner and I wanted to go into that church and pray. And that's what he did. The moment he was released, he asked his family to take him there. He said, going into that church, he said it was like being born again. It was a release. He was set free. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel is freedom. Religion gives you traditions. Religion gives you superstition. It is bondage. But the gospel offers grace and transformation. That's the first thing. Second thing, religion promotes rules and traditions. The gospel offers grace and transformation. Religion promotes rules and traditions. The gospel offers grace and transformation. The gospel of Christ, it changes the way that we see and we experience the world. It, it transforms who we are. Look at verses 10 through 16. It says, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So you have this picture that it's the Sabbath day. And this man, of course, is healed by Jesus. And he picks up the, the it's basically a mat, his bed or whatever you want to call it. And, and he starts to walk. And these religious rulers and re religious leaders there, they see him. And, and they're mad because they understand it's a Sabbath day and he's actually carrying something. Now, Exodus 20, verse 11, the Hebrew people were to stop all work on the Sabbath. 
because it's an evidence that God, when he did creation on the seventh day, it says he rested from the work of creation. And the Lord instituted the Sabbath not for God. Do you guys think God needed rest? No, he's, he's all-powerful. He doesn't need rest. It, it was an example for us, for, for us as people. And the reason is, is because when we work day after day, the mundane, the routine, it was a break in that. Not only was it a time for our bodies to recoup and heal, but it was a time for us to focus on God and worship. It was a recognition of everything he had done for us. It was a time for us to worship. But religion does not promote worship. Religion promotes rules. It brings in man-made traditions on top of what God has said in his scripture. Religion, what it does, it, it develops traditions that distort the truth of the scripture. And a religious person will always be critical of other people that don't quite form up to whatever their religious structure is. Now, so you understand on this beautiful and simple command to rest on the Sabbath, the legalistic Jews, they added 39 categories that were for forbidden activities. Let me read them really quick. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, let me catch my breath, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. The last one was in marking. I was surprised it didn't say in breathing, right? I mean, what they did, they took something that was so simple, so beautiful for the good of mankind, and they made it a burden. They made it a trap. There's no way people could live this out in any real sense. But the gospel doesn't work like that. It teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith does not remain alone. When we believe, we're changed, and suddenly we want to live for God. The evidence of the working of the gospel is that it changes who we are, and, and our desires change, our, our nature changes, our, our character changes. We desire to live out for Christ. Saving faith, it unites us with Christ. It gives us a heart transformation. It, it changes us from the inside out. Religion, you do things outside, and hopefully you earn God's favor. Religion is legalistic. Chuck Swindoll said this, legalism is based on lists. Legalists love their lists. If you do keep every item on the do's and don'ts, you're deemed spiritually acceptable. But if you don't, you're unacceptable. So this man, he's unacceptable. He's carrying his mat. And so you have this picture here where these legalistic Jewish leaders, they see him, and instead of having compassion for a man that's been sick for 38 years, they judge him on the spot. And they ridicule him for carrying this. And legalism is more than the conscious belief that I can be saved by my good work. It's, it's kind of a web of attitudes and, and heart that gets corrupted. So they said to this man in verses 10 and 11, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And he answered then, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. So he's caught in this violation of, of that tradition and then what he does, he blame shifts. You guys see it? 
He's like, hey, it's not my fault. It's his fault. <laughs> Jesus, he told me to carry it, you know, that kind of thing. One commentator, his name is Leon Morris. I love this. He says, this man was not the stuff of which heroes are made of. I think he's like, oh, but understand, I kind of give this guy some grace. He's been caught in this system for years. He's been trapped in this way of thinking. And so what they do is they press him for more information. Look at verses 12 and 13. Who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. These leaders, they think they're the experts. They think they understand the law, but actually what what they understood was traditions that were man-made, that were heaped onto the law. And it reminds me of the story when Jesus goes into the synagogue, and you guys probably remember this, where he, he heals a man who has a withered hand. This is early in his ministry, and he asks a question to those religious leaders that were there. Let me read that for you. Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? It says, but they kept silent. Why? Why did they keep silent? Because they know it's good to do good on the Sabbath. And literally, Jesus right here, I think he saved this man's life. He's ill for 38 years, and in that culture and at that time, you would die. But he did good on the Sabbath. So when you look at what Jesus says about those who who live in religion, he always has a harsh word, a harsh warning. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23, we call it the woe chapter. He gives eight woes. I want to read you just the first one. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. And on and on Jesus goes seven more times. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men. These leaders missed it. Right there in their midst was the living gospel, Jesus Christ. And instead, they were living in the tradition of men. And we must be careful as a church. Some start out in the gospel trusting Christ, but then you get roped up into trusting in your works and good deeds. You get roped up in tradition and religion. And what happens is there's usually two mistakes that happen within the church. The first one is legalism, and the second one is called antinomianism. That's a big word. I'm going to explain it. Most of us understand legalism. Legalism denies God's grace and presumes that we can earn His favor through our deeds. That's what these guys were doing here. Antinomianism is kind of the reverse of that. It's the idea that as Christians, we can relate to God any way we want because the grace, it covers all things, so let's just live and have a party and do whatever we want because the grace covers anything that we do. Legalism is in the church. It's the attitude that somehow my ethical goodness, my avoidance of any deliberate sin, my faithfulness to the Bible and the church, my faithfulness to the Bible and the church, that it earns God's favor. Instead of Christ's faithfulness and His perfect life and my trust in Him, that's legalism. Antinomianism is in the church also. It holds that we're saved by grace, 
then our behavior and our obedience, it really doesn't matter to God. That grace is just kind of this open book that we can do and live any way that we want. But Paul the Apostle, he says it time and time again, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says in Romans 6, 1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what antinomian does, it, it, it takes grace and then it springboards into sin. What legalism does is it takes the law and it uses it a covering for sin. Both are wrong. Both miss the gospel of grace. The gospel is dependence on Jesus Christ alone. It's a trust in His perfect work. It's the recognition that I ain't got it. I can't live it. I can't do it, but He did. And so I rest in His work. And I trust in his finished work and death and life and resurrection. So what Jesus does is he begins to, to warn this man. Look at verse 14. It says, he found him in the temple and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now it seems that there was something going on with this man that maybe he had sinned in some way. I'm not sure what it is, but it seems like the reason he was sick is he was, had done something that made him ill. And that sin had caused the illness. Now, we've seen this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it with David after his sin with Bathsheba and, and the killing of Uriah. He literally said in Psalm 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. And then he confessed his sin and he was freed. We see this in, in the New Testament where they used to have these love feasts and people would gather and they would, they would partake of this meal together. But within that meal, they also had the Lord's table where they'd have the, the wine and the bread and they'd recognize Jesus that, like we do with communion. But what happened is some of the people would come in and they, they'd gorge themselves on the food and they'd drink all the wine and get drunk and they did it in an unworthy manner. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, eat the bread and drink the cup. For if he eats and drinks, he drinks judgment on himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you, it says, have died, or it says, sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So there's evidence both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that there is a discipline that comes from the Lord that sometimes happens with unconfessed sin. If you're willing to live in your sin and not confess it before a holy God, sometimes it's discipline even to the point of death, as it says in 1 Corinthians. So after this amazing miracle, you would think that this man, he'd want to follow Jesus. But instead, in verse 15, it says he went away and he told the Jews who had made him well. Instead, he snitches. He says, hey, he did it. And we know that after that, because he said that, verse 16 says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The issue here is the authority of the Sabbath. These Jews wanted to say they had the authority over the Sabbath. But Jesus proved through this miracle that he is the one who has authority over all because he is truly the Lord of the Sabbath. I want to clarify for you guys kind of the difference between the, the gospel versus religion. Traditional religion, 
It teaches that if I obey the rules, that God will accept me. But Christianity, the gospel message, is very different. The gospel teaches that I'm not good enough to be accepted. But when I put my faith, my belief in Jesus, who was perfect, then I'm accepted, and then I want to obey the rules. You see the reverse of that? Two totally different paradigms. And what it is, it's the motivation of the heart that is different there. Karen and I have been going through a book series called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. We've been watching these videos, and he shared something I want to kind of put in a picture with her and our relationship in marriage. So I can maybe explain this gospel. I hope I do it justice. Karen and I, when we first started dating, this is back in our early 20s, when I saw my wife, I was like, wow, she's beautiful. And so I started wanting to date her. And what I realized is I started to limit myself. I started to change the way I did things because I wanted to be with her. I didn't hang out with my friends as much as I used to. I kind of cleaned up my language a little bit. I, you know, I didn't even eat the same foods. She hates fish. I love fish, but I didn't order fish anymore. I, I, I limited myself. I held back on things that I normally would do. Why? Because I wanted to be with her. I love her. Now, that's all great, but then as the years progress, now we're married And what if I'm the only one who limits themselves? This relationship is really going to be difficult. But praise the Lord, my wife also limits herself. And she doesn't do certain things that maybe she wants to do because she wants to bless me. And and we have a give and take in our relationship. And and it's a blessing, 31 years now of marriage. In a very similar way, we see this with God. He's limited himself for our sake. He, he, he became a man. He, he, he put down, if you will, his divine nature for a while, and he literally became flesh like us. And then he went to the cross and he died for us. He gave us his very best. He limited himself for you and me. And now when we simply trust in him, we have this relationship. And now I want to limit myself. I don't want to do everything that my flesh tells me to do. Why? Because I love him. The motivation of my heart is love. Where the motivation in religion is rules. Do you see the difference? My heart is given over to Christ, and I love Him, and I want to follow Him. But in religion, it's follow all the rules. I've seen two things. Religion promotes superstition and bondage. The gospel offers the power of God and freedom. And religion promotes rules and tradition, and the gospel offers grace and transformation. And here's the last one. Religion promotes persecution and fear, and the gospel offers assurance and security. Religion promotes persecution and fear, and the gospel offers assurance and security. These are the last two verses here. It says, but he answered them, saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, Jesus says right here, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. I want you to understand this is important. The Jews thought since God rested after creation that he didn't do anything else, but that's not true. He stopped the creative act, but the sustaining act, he always kept going. He kept the the planet spinning, the universe functioning. He allowed oxygen to happen. God is always active. The Sabbath is for us. It's a benefit. And so Jesus says here, hey, my father's been working until now, yes. And then he says this, and I've been working. Ooh, there's the connection. Do you guys see it? 
The Jews saw it. And because of that, they wanted to kill him. He's saying, he's my father. We are one. When people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, there are so many places in so many different ways, and this is one of them. He's claiming that divine nature as God. What religion does, when you deviate from them, they want you to fear. You need to keep that rule. If you don't keep that rule, we're coming down on you. But what the gospel offers in Jesus Christ is assurance. It's a safe place. He does the finished work. We simply believe. He offers the gift. We accept. And when we do, we're secured in Him. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He is the faithful one. It's not based on our faithfulness. As a way of closing, I just want to share with you Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther's life. He was stuck in, in, as a monk in Roman Catholicism. And, and basically, in, in, in Catholicism, it taught, taught that, that God is righteous and that you need to be righteous too to earn his favor. And what happened with Martin Luther is he got stuck in Romans 1.17, and he couldn't figure it out. In fact, as Martin Luther was considered to be the most zealous monk there was, literally his knees would bleed because he'd spend hours in prayer. But he says, I never felt the love of God. He says, I would look at my own heart. He used to drive the other monks crazy because he would go to them to confess his sin and would spend hours literally confessing his sins. And then he spent time meditating in Romans 1.17, and it says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And it went, Poof. he realized that it was what we call passive righteousness. It was Christ's righteousness, not our righteousness. It was faith in his righteous work, not ours. And when that happened, he said, I felt as if I was born anew. Church, I pray that we are not trapped in dead religion, but that we're trusting in the only Savior who can save, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you how it saves and transforms our lives, how it offers us freedom and grace. Lord, help us now as we close this service. May you be honored in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen.